The ruin of Kentucky. Take my hammer. <laughs> Beat me over the head on this black night. Ba 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 bang dang dang. Okay, the last one I know is not real. That's real. Blue ruin. Blue moon. Yeah, blue moon. exactly. That's... But I'm doing yeah, just blue okay. songs. Yeah, I was trying I did to do Blue Moon of Kentucky. Okay, I didn't know that one. <laughs> that was great. That's a great song. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was wow. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's actually kind of Appalachian appropriate as well. Yeah, yeah. So. so it does the thing. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Honor Cast. We gather around a table. We discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. We continue with our series of coincidences with uh, Blue Ruin. Uh, man, it's going to be a good time. Uh, I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I am still Dalton. And uh, yes, indeed, Blue Ruin is Cohen-esque, and we'll talk more about that momentarily. In case you're tuning into the show for the very first time, though, we want to let you know, dear listener, that this is not a review show. It is an analysis show. And that does indeed mean, although there will be some review, we are going to do analysis. And analysis requires text, and text requires spoilers. And so, the way it looks is this. We have an opening synopsis just to let you know what it's about. And then we move on to quick reviews in which we say more about what it's about without giving away the ending or any other sort of salient plot details. And then... We move on to expanding the syllabus in which we play a game which might involve spoilers of this film or other films of its ilk. Uh, more often than not, thematic spoilers more than sure. plottish spoilers. Yes, And this pl- plotty film this week, as many of the films in this marathon have been, uh, what with them all being Cohen-esque. But this one, yeah, it's got some twists and turns that I, you know. Yeah, I think the fun is what happens. Yeah. Uh, I mean, much of the fun. I mean, there's more fun than that, but yeah. we'll get there when we get there. If and then, there's fun to be had at all, really, and you can make that argument. <laughs> well, and there is, is this a fun movie? Hmm, probably not. Uh, it's but funny. Be, there, there are times mm-hmm. in which it is funny. Uh, anyway, uh, after we get done with that, expanding the syllabus, we have some music to let you know that we've gotten into spoiler territories, which is our business. And so there's business music to let you know we've gotten down to said business. You have been warned. Without any further ado, Arthur, do you have syllabus prepared for us? I do, but you want a synopsis first? Uh, what did I say? Sy- syllabus? I've done this more than once. The synopsis, please. <laughs> I've been doing it for 10 years. Oh, man, it's terrible. <laughs> Upon learning that the man convicted of his parents' murder has been released, Dwight goes on a trip to the Appalachia States to settle the debt. Are we going to be in a blood feud by the end of this? Um, a real Hatfields and the McCoy scenario. I have bad news for you. We've already been in a blood feud. You just didn't oh, know it yet. God. I'm coming after you. Dueling banjos at oh, dawn. God. I'm coming after you. Uh, I yes, have indeed. no choice but to come at you through your sons. And we've all seen... Oh, <laughs> can I pick? Uh, <laughs> you mean, no. I'm just kidding. Um, and I kind of quit joking like this. People are going to start believing. Yeah, they're going to find the tapes and yeah, you're going to be yeah. incriminated when something yeah, goes so, down. So, if something terrible happens, which God forbid, I would yeah, never... Yeah, we've got another episode we're recording today that shows you the utility of like choosing what you say in public I know, carefully. Right? It might get you in trouble. Indeed, it may. Uh, yes, uh, we've all seen this movie several times i've seen it once uh this is my third time yeah okay so i think i've seen it more i think i've seen it at least four times maybe okay. five. Oh wow at this point nice um so i'm gonna go to you first arthur um the obviously cooked but not overcooked viewer of the film okay what do you say in review yeah um i think that blue ruin is very solid movie i've seen it this is again my second time it's been a while since mm-hmm. i had seen it I remember really digging it the first time I watched it. I think Saulnier is just a very solid craftsman um, putting this together. I think it's sharp. It's smart. It's uh, clever. It's got some just very dry humor uh, that is, if you're not paying attention, might misread it or misunderstand it. But I think it's very sharp in that delivery. Um, I, I like, you know, we, we've been looking at these series of stories with unprofessionals, mm-hmm. um, and we've got another very amateur uh, guy here just out of his element who is on a journey and isn't sure of his destination and what it's going to look like when he gets there. And I think that um, I just lost his name. Uh, Blair. Blair. Oh, yeah. Uh, just does a great job leading this. He's a little schlubby, um, you know, and he gets to do this you know, completely homeless drifter thing. And then he gets to clean up a little bit, Uh, but he's just got a lot of heart and pathos that it's easy to get invested in his story. And I'm really happy to get to see him becoming, or at least getting to see him pop up as more of a Hollywood character actor, because that feels like a great fit for him. Cause he is 
just a great actor and he yeah. can kind of versatile uh, verse has the versatility to kind of be put into different spots uh, in a cast and I think in an ensemble uh, and so I appreciate that um, you know everybody else here it's, it's a pretty small film and it's very economic in that and I always appreciate that kind of economic filmmaking I mean obviously a very shoestring budget type of movie but mm. you wouldn't know you know you watch it and it, I think they make great use of everything that they are given on screen um, and so it's a tight 85 minutes pre-credits and so uh, i'm all aboard that I, I think it's you know it shows Sonia's technical expertise in a very strong way um i think i just i enjoy it but i, I never get as invested into it like i do green room mm, like there's a level of fun that i have with green room as i'm you know kind of yeah much more edge of my seat with that this is much more sit back and kind of wait and you're really in there with dwight on his journey um, and so I, I think it's a really solid, you know, it's like four out of five stars. I think it's a incredibly well-made movie. Watch it again. I think it's interesting in the light of the, you know, we've had countless conversations about the revenge thriller and the state of that. And so this is really kind of in that same conversation as a, you were never really here or a pig. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of in that, mm -hmm. uh, Venn diagram of giving us this thing, but also talking about this thing. And I think that it does a fine job of that with also wearing uh, some of its influence on its sleeve. And I think it, it works with all of that. And uh, when we get some of that violence, it is very, very impactful. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I think it's a great movie. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What do you say, Dalton? Yeah, I love this film. Uh, I, I was chips fully pushed in on Jeremy Saunier and Macon Blair pretty early on. I remember, I think film spotting is how I learned about this film. I think it was a golden brick nominee mm -hmm. for them the year it came out. Um, but I, I remember following this film and, and being excited for it as a, you know, just a, a Kickstarter funded piece. And, you know, obviously we've talked about green room It made my top 100 and, you know, I, I, I kind of pushed heavily for us to cover it on the show a few years back. So I'm, I'm fully in on these guys and, and this film revisiting it was just such a treat. Um, I got to watch it with our, our friend of the show, Alex Sanchez. And, uh, you know, he's, he's not much into, violent films really or revenge oh, films no. and i i was just oh, like no making blair's dewy-eyed deeply empathetic performance is going to carry mm -hmm. us through this together and it did and he ended up being pretty into it we had a great time watching it together though and it's just such a ride to take somebody on the uh the last time i had watched it before this was uh showing it to uh back in preparation for going to see green room when that came out and um it, it just i don't know it gets its hooks in you so early for, for me, you know, when the cops show up and you don't really understand, like, uh oh, well, you know, just like because of Dwight's status as an unhoused character, as soon as the cops show up, you're like, oh, God, what fresh hell is this? Like, what's going to happen to him? And, you know, it turns out to be this this very sweet officer who's you know trying to look out for him. And but then even that looking out for him, like immediately just like brings you into this world of like just things are coming unglued for him right away. And uh, I feel like between Macon's performance and Sonya's direction, it really does such an excellent job of keeping you squarely in Dwight's shoes. Uh, and even when you disagree with his actions or think what he's doing is stupid or like, oh, dear God, you idiot, don't do that. <laughs> right. Every step of the way, you just you want him to be OK, even though he's doing bad stuff like he's inarguably like, you know, left the moral high road uh, pretty early in the film. And at the same time, like they keep having these save the cat moments with that character. He keeps trying to set things right in his way. And it, it just really does carry you along. And as you said, Arthur, it, it is so of a piece with these other 2010s. Or I guess Pig's a 2020 movie, but um, or 2020s movie. But it, it is of a piece with these these other like sort of anti revenge thrillers. Really, the last 10 years. I mean, this is yeah. maybe the one of the first in this Definitely sort of early re, on. Re, re, Evaluation of the subgenre, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And it's just, it's so beautiful in, in its photography and, as you said, so economical in its filmmaking. And yet, with that shoestring budget, they really are, you know, put the money on screen with their practical effects and and try not to shy away from the violence. I think, um, what's his face? The, uh, 
the brother, older brother from, from Home, Alone. Home Alone. Yeah. yeah Who has the thesis statement line of the movie. That's what bullets do. Mm-hmm. And it is, that is like the moment where Sonya goes, hi, this is what my movie's about. <laughs> it's about violence will tear you apart and it will ruin everything near you. And it will not be cool. And it will not be sexy. It will be horrible. PG-13 violence is immoral. Yeah. 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 It is. It is very much a like a statement on like violence in, in American cinema in some ways without ever being preachy or, you know, as much as we like a didactic film here, at least I do. Um, it, it definitely, you know, says what it has to say with, you know, as, as much as it's economical with its budget, it's economical with what it says. <clears throat> and let's let's the text speak for itself fairly often. Uh, yeah, I love this movie. Five out of five stars. I uh, can't wait to rewatch it. Made me want to rewatch uh, Sonya's Hold the Dark, his Netflix movie. I need to see which, that too. Yeah, I'm kind of mixed on, but I think you'll like it. Yeah, I think you'll. It's real freak shit. I think you'll go for it. You know me. Speaking of, yeah, he has you, a wheelhouse. You've seen this movie a bunch. You also think it's pretty good. Yeah, I watched it a bunch of times because I like it so much. I yeah. mean, it is so stinking good. And uh, you know, you guys have talked a lot about the sympathy uh, with Macon Blair's character Dwight, and I think that is a lot of the power of the movie. But I think the tension, the suspense, really works for the film as well. That for sure, all the time you are on pins and needles, and you are seeing the wheels come off, and you're wondering how or if um, various characters are going to get out of situations mm-hmm. and how that's going to go about, and so. So I, and again, as you mentioned, that opening scene where uh, a police officer comes to inform Dwight of some bad news, that uh, as that happens, you don't and the, the way in which um, Saulier uh, is able to drive us to these sort of awkward, tense and uh, really anxious kind of moments. Yeah, you're making me think of one I forgot to bring up, which I'm sure you're thinking of the scene of the restaurant with his sister. Yes. where He realizes oh no of course they never called the police and yeah. I know why they never called the police right yeah those moments of realization and then getting her out and then waiting and the whole waiting game mm-hmm. and how that's going to play out and when there are three men that show up to sort of do what they're going to do in that moment you're just thinking oh, he's done he's caught and he's this is you know we're 30 minutes into the movie it's, is this thing over already and it's you know it's not and then more obstacles come his way and how's he going to handle that and how's he going to and so over and over and over again, you think things are over. You think it's it's there's a there's a trunk scene a la Tarantino that takes place and you think, oh, it's over now. And then it's not. And uh, wild times uh, throughout. And so I really think in terms of suspense, the movie really, really works as well. Uh, not just um, the, the sort of tour de force performance that we have from Megan Blair. And so that I, again, I put that on Son- Sonier. 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 I think. Um, French name, I'm uh, guessing. Yeah, the yeah. French. Um, we don't have to be nice to them. Moving <laughs> on, though, uh, th- that's that was really fun uh, about the movie. Um, the rest of it's no fun at all because the violence is, as you say, so gross and intentionally gross. And we see this sort of continued in Green Room uh, mm-hmm. from the same director that uh, he wants to make sure that we we suffer alongside our characters and choose. He does it again in Hold the Dark, too. Does and he? that one's yeah. a more firearms violence focused, at least in one particular set piece uh, than Green Room is. So it's mm-hmm. it's the, the conclusion of the trunk scene in this film uh, blown out into a whole like oh. shootout with the police set piece. Oh, my. It's gnarly yeah sounds that way and like because of the identity of the characters like is kind of a a very interesting like statement piece Mm. uh, because it's an indigenous character having a firefight with the police okay as related to like the larger plot of the film interesting which we don't need to get into but yeah it's okay yeah yeah hold the dark is a wild picture you got me intrigued yeah i can't wait to hear what you think but yeah but again like it is all like the violence in all three of those films is mm-hmm. just so stark. And like it's that kind of starkness can be cool sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Like even in like a, you know, like a hyper violent war movie or something. Or like a, a 30 Days a Night even. Sure. Something like that, you know, like a big sort of splattery gore, horror. Gore fest gore horror, movie. horror picture. Yeah. Yeah. And how and that's the, uh, such an interesting. It really shows what difference the craft makes really Mm -hmm. and obviously i was going to credit it to sonia but this is sort of in every level of the production sort of thing yeah prop masters prop masters and makeup people sound design Mm -hmm. you know the difference between like cool gore and like unsettling gore is is all in the craft Mm -hmm. and and yeah i think third day of tonight's a great pool you know about six seven years before green or blue ruin but you know 
different, you know, big Hollywood movie, but definitely like also hyper violent for right. sure. And uh, yeah, this film just like does it in such a way that makes you, uh, you're impressed by the effects if you're a movie head. But if even if you are impressed by the effects, it's hard not to be kind of taken mm. aback by their brutality and yeah. their their suddenness. Oh, BT Dubs, dear listener, um, Blue Ruin is country for quagmire or debacle. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, um, utter failure. And so uh, what Blue Ruin is this is um, country phraseology. Sure, makes so, sense. There you go. Um, for fun kicks and grins. Mm-hmm. Moving on, I can see that our biases are generally pro towards this film, but we're going to do something else with it now. We're going to do a thing called Expand the Syllabus, and Dalton is going to tell you what that's all about. Yeah, so on this show, we talk about the films you would never discuss in a film studies course, and each week we try to talk about those films in a film studies course type way. I thought this movie might come up. Yeah. Conceivably. Yeah, independent film, crowdsourced fi- financing. I mean, that's a big one. This is like one Indie of... darlings. This is a huge like crowdsourced funding you know, success story, and yeah, you're right, a big indie darling. Uh, so th- this could conceivably come up. Yeah. This movie got a movie release, and so yeah. w- when, when, some, when those curated kind of uh, services pick this kind of thing up, that tends to be the stuff that... Um, I think film and yeah, it's not an original of theirs, professors. though. Unfortunately, uh, no, no, it's not because it would be nice for them to just have it all the time, right? Um, yeah, this this film definitely feels like it should have a, a streaming home. I'm mm-hmm. surprised it doesn't, but it, it it was kind of a Netflix classic for a little bit. Um, well, I think it's a uh, it's a sign of its independent financing. Well, to that point, I mean, that's one avenue for approaching this film and how you could discuss it academically. Uh, that's what we do. We find the academic foothold in how to talk about a movie, and then we kind of assign adjacent texts, uh, films, other shit that kind of makes us think about the movie and uh, that we think would uh, add to the discussion. So yeah, we're going to build a class around Blue Ruin. Let's do it. Well, do you have a syllabus prepared, my friend? I do, yeah. I think this would be a Sonya unit in a, a class, maybe an intro to filmmaking class um, or, you know, a you know, an intro to appreciation. But it would just be at the millennial auteurs. Um, and God, that would be annoying for the current generation going to colleges, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Cause, yeah. yeah well, I'm sure they would love to hear about all the great millennial auteurs and how they should give a shit about them. Well, those Zed auteurs are just beginning now. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know. And that's kind of what's interesting about the millennial auteurs is we just are kind of at a crossroads for a lot of these filmmakers. But I, I think Sonia fits in with people like Robert Eggers and Ari Aster, uh, but even, you know, older millennials like Jordan Peele uh, and then... Greta Gerwig sort of in the middle of all of those folks, but uh, all, all these people born between like, I think Peel's like a late seventies baby. I, I think feel like her and Bombeck both are, are kind of millennials. Yeah. Bombeck you know? always kind of associate more with Gen X, yeah, but I he know, is I, sort I, of, I'd be curious what his birth year actually is. Yeah. I know he's a little older than Gerwig. Is he born in, in 1969? 1960. Okay, so yeah, he's old. Proper, and like, yeah, I think Jordan Peele's like a 79 baby. So really? I think he's a little, he's kind yeah, of an X or millennial. He's like millennial. me like yeah, those, exactly. those last X's. Yeah. yeah. But I, I think I would kind of fit them all together because they're they're all like what three films deep? I mean, pretty much all of them. Eggers, Astor, all, all of the people I just listed are on their third film, mm-hmm. and they're all in really different places of their career. Like obviously, Greta Gerwig's just become one of the biggest filmmakers of all time. Um, I, I want to insert just the most yeah, boring thing that yeah, a person feel can free. do because I'm like we could just name the names. Yeah, D- Denis Villeneuve does he kind of? Oh sure, yeah, he's kind of a cusper as well. But well, I think yeah. I think he's. No, is he not? Is he like properly Gen X? Is he like a late 60s? 67. 67. 67. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he's yeah. been making films for yeah. like 20 years I, I or so. I forget that too. Yeah. yeah. Whole, Polytechnique. Like, yeah, he had the whole Canadian-French you know, career. About I always think that he was like a, a baby. You know, I, I always want to think that he was like a, a prodigy cranking those films mm-hmm. out. But you're right. He was like... He's properly at, in that film industry. Been at it for a hot minute. I mean, he's been working since 1990. Oh wow. Okay. God, yeah, he's he, cooking. Yeah, he's full out Xer then. Uh, yeah. But yeah, no. If you if you have anybody that comes to mind, feel free to throw them out. Sorry. Um, yeah. We I, can we can vet them through Arthur, but you're it, a terrible it, judge of ages. I, well, it's true. It's true. Because well, I mean, you're that career thing, right? And I mean, yeah. You yeah. expect most people would have an early start, but you do have your people who get known for a while or well and even Gerwig I mean who is three films into directing but has a fourth film that she's a co-director on is a credited screenwriter on a bunch of you know mobile core features is you know been acting for 15 years at this point I mean a long time Mm -hmm. so like all of these people have like legs in the industry Uh, did the Daniels we could definitely bring in here as well um, well, Ty West, Ryan Johnson, I think are in sure, there. Sure, well, sure, sure. Well, yeah. Ryan's a little older. Uh, that's true. He's 73. Wow. Yeah. 
But yeah, because that's right. Brick, even that, he was like two thousand five. Well, was, and like, you got to think about twenties when Brick came out. The I think. voice yeah. of the filmmakers themselves, because you got to sort. Of, I mean, you know, does, is Cameron Crowe really properly an expert? Is he almost like a cusper boomer? You know, you wonder those kind of things. And, yeah. and and the ways in which where you find your voice and find your style. Sometimes it is sort of looking backward into a, a moment kind of before, you know, uh, your film uh, or a moment. Of the moment, yeah. I guess what I should say. Well, and you're kind of just scratching at is like Cameron Crowe. Is he a, is he a boomer? Oh yeah, he's 57. Yeah, 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 totally a boomer. What you're scratching at though is is sort of what this class could maybe touch on is just like yeah, generational cohorts are sort of made up in pop mm-hmm. sociology, right? And and we can kind of like examine like what can these these bodies of work tell us about like how these filmmakers relate to one another, and really the only thing we'll probably get is. They're all cinephiles and they all share a love of film and their films echo other films or other stories that are common. Um, and that's that's probably the only, you know, work, you know, center point cornerstone we'd find is kind of like a, a genre awareness amongst all of these filmmakers, even when they're operating out sort of conventional genre strictures. I think they're all aware of sort of the, the formal guidelines and how to subvert and play within um, and I, yeah, I think that's what's really interesting about this class of filmmaker. I, you know, not to toot my my generation's horn, but like I think they're we've got some pretty cool folks out there making cool stuff. And you know, there's plenty of schmucks too. We don't, you know, we've listed folks that are cool and that we whose work we admire. Um, but I, I, I am especially interested in Sonier's his his sort of trilogy of bleak horror films of not horror films, but like revenge thrillers or violent, you know, violent capers. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and they're all kind of of a piece with each other. So I'm curious what he would do. You know, he's got that fourth early film chainsaw party massacre. Murder Party. Murder Party Massacre or whatever, yeah. Is that what it is? Just Murder Party? Party? I always want to say I think it's got a longer title. Murder I've never seen Party. it. I just picture the guy with the chainsaws on the poster mm-hmm. and his little cardboard armor. Yeah, he's got he's got a fourth film that I've never seen. But of the ones that he's done, they, they're all very much of a piece with each other. And I'd be curious, you know, how he would evolve. You know, does he keep telling these sorts of stories or not? Um, you know, the last thing he worked on was the first two episodes of season three of True Detective. He was kind of attached, if I remember right, to do the whole season. And him and Pizzolatto sort of had a headsbutting situation. Mm. So he didn't end up directing the whole thing. But yeah, that was the last thing he worked on. And he's kind of been silent since then uh, after Hold the Dark and a little True Detective work. So I'm, I'm be excited to see him come back because, yeah, I think this film is really exciting. And again, Hold the Dark and Green Room as well are just without spoiling too much about either of those films are you know, one's kind of a werewolf movie. Uh, and the other one is kind of a, you know, siege thriller, you know, like Nazi exploitation, Nazi exploitation, but also, you know, zombie movie, zombie movie, assault on precinct 13, real Bravo. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the kind of classic, you know, we're holding the fort down sort of bullshit, but uh, again, subverted and more of a diehard because they're stuck inside. And again, the whole political angle of them being Nazis. And again, just like his, his whole career and filmography is sort of accidentally, or maybe not accidentally, you can make the argument, but very political in its way. I mean, this film, you know, definitely has, has its eye on an America that exists pretty much outside of traditional strictures mm-hmm. uh ditto for green room and ditto for hold the dark all these films are about people living on the margins creating their own ecosystems their own mores and um yeah that, if, that's kind of maybe more than the revenge thriller stuff although i like that i'm i'm, ex- I'm excited to see him continue to explore these kind of hidden worlds and, and sort of these these societies that have their own codes and stuff uh arthur how would you teach blue ruin um, before I get to that, I was going to say Sonia is working on a film called Rebel Ridge. Oh, cool. With Anna Sophia Robb, James Cromwell, and Don Johnson. Um, there Interesting for that. cast. Uh, here's, the, here's the bit. A high-velocity thriller that explores systemic American injustice through bone-breaking action sequences, suspense, and dark humor. So, so all of his movies. A Jeremy so, Sonia movie. It sounds yeah. like a Sonia movie, yeah. Yeah, fucking A. All right, I'm there. Hey, um, Day one. Uh, gotta, gotta have a brand, man. Rebel Ridge. Well, you already mentioned that he had a movie before this called Murder Party, and mm-hmm. so I was thinking about, you know, we talk a lot about the sophomore slump, um, but I think it's interesting when a director can come in and equal or... S- you know, supersede what they've done previously. So I want to look at some sophomore knockouts. Do explain the sophomore slump in case a dear listener doesn't know. 
it's when you suck it up in your second attempt at something. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the, based the, in high school, right? I mean, the, the logic being you've got your whole life to make your first album, your first movie, and then you've yeah. got, what, two years to make another one. And yeah. oftentimes it's yeah. kind of terrible. And yeah. yeah, it's usually albums and films I mm-hmm. is where you really hear, hear a lot. No, well, novels, yeah. too, I think. You know, oh, sure. Second yeah. novels. Anytime yeah. where a creator is doing a second thing after some acclaim, I think, for the first thing. So uh, I think we'd start with Mr. Oppenheimer himself. We'd talk about Nolan uh, following up following uh, with a movie called <laughs> Memento. Sure. Uh, which, I mean, just absolutely uh, at least opens the big door a- yeah. and, you know, sets him down a track but i mean it is still kind of regarded as a classic of that early odd cinema and i think held in high regard in his own philography still by a lot of people who appreciate i mean it is really him playing at time the most maybe most cl- i think in his, even really his, seeing that that stuff that yeah i want to do yeah i think even his detractors like that one for the most part yeah i mean it, yeah. it's you know pretty universally lauded so we'd, we'd look at following or we'd look at memento uh and then from there we'd talk about Catherine bigelow uh, she comes out co-directing a movie called The Loveless that we talked about on the show a long time ago. I still like that movie. I like it more the more I think about it. Uh, and so she follows that up with a movie called Near Dark mm-hmm. uh, about some uh, some gangster uh, or some uh, outlaw vampires uh, with the late and great Bill Paxton. That movie's uh, so cool. Which is just so fun. Right. And I think it really signifies or symbolizes the kind of career she is going to go on to have mm-hmm. and uh, especially the kind of things she's very interested in. Uh, from there, we would talk about Alien Ridley Scott's uh, follow-up to his first film, The Duelists, uh, which I, I think history's been pretty fair to the Alien uh, yeah. and, and everything <laughs> Scott did with that. They like it. They like it. The critics do. Yeah, I, I've heard good things about it here or there. Um, and, and I think it is only appropriate to follow that up uh, with David Fincher, who starts with Alien 3 and sure. then gets a 7. Uh, yeah. Again, I mean, just <laughs> setting the stage for... A, a cinematic aesthetic for about 15 years. And a three mm. plus a seven equals a 10. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yes. That's where we get there. Uh, I, I think from that though, uh, we, we have a little fun and we take a look at Boogie Nights. Yeah. Um, PTA's follow up to Heart Eight, mm. uh, where he just kind of goes all out in this uh, underworld of, of pornography and we get Marky Mark and Philip Seymour Hoffman and Coked everybody out just Alfred having Molina. a blast. Oh man, what a moment. Yeah. Um, and, and finally, I, I think we'd end with Pulp Fiction. And sure. we talk about Tarantino post Reservoir Dogs and looking at that. And I mean, the absolute impact those two movies had on especially American independent cinema in the early 90s. So uh, but that's what we talk about. We talk about some of those and we may look at some where they uh, did get into the slump. But I'm just looking at knockouts for now. Nice. I am. I'm I'm, ser- I'm sitting here wrestling with myself even now. As far as syllabi, I think I'm going to... Oh, do you have like two in mind? I have two in mind. I'm going to go with the sillier syllabus because I think the other one will directly get... We'll get to talking about it anyway when we get down to business. Okay. Uh, so I've got one dealing with the myth of redemption, redemptive violence. So um, tantalize you, dear listener, because I think we do need to talk about that because sure. this movie is obviously dealing with that. But I'm going to talk about Hillbilly Revenge. Yes. Because, man... Backwoods Justice. Uh, my th- favorite Rob Zombie album. <laughs> there's so much of it. And so beginning with the Swayze... As you must with next of kin, sure. uh, a frequent uh, Joe Bob Briggs a Monster Vision movie I saw for the very first time on uh, the movie channel TMC back when that was a cable uh, avenue there. And Joe Bob talked about the Bofu and did the thing when his rundown. It was like I think it might have been the first Joe Bob movie I'd seen. Oh wow! Um, hosted with Joe Bob Briggs, and so I have a lot of affection for that movie anyway because that was just I didn't know you could do that. What a good time. And from then I searched out the horror hosts and found Elvira and um, certain things awakened in me. And uh, we move on uh, from there. But nonetheless, um, was it your werewolf? It, yes, I am a werewolf. My inner werewolf. I, I grew, keep you've got to get us out of here. I grew hair in funny places. Get us out of here. He's <laughs> <laughs> just howling every night. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so yes, next of kin is a good place to start, but also like the urtext, uh, which would be a deliverance. Uh, Bert, sure. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there's just so much going on with that particular movie, and that sort of sociological piece is, is much more clear and also uh, a bit more subtle than Swayze's great sort of hillbilly detective kind of performance in Next of Kin. But it's a lot of fun. And then I was thinking about just the violent. Uh, what if we looked at the family of Blue Ruin? And so Devil's Rejects. Uh, Mm. from Rob Zombie seems like the the natural pick there 
uh, for that. And so uh, lots and lots of that sort of southern rock, free bird, kind of Leonard Skinner kind of aesthetic on top of just horror, awful, terrible crime stuff, violence. And uh, I, I think it would be fun to think about how filmmakers through various decades have approached uh, these kinds of questions and uh, this kind of sociological, cultural difference. And I, I would dare say um, snootiness and the way in which these groups of people tend to be looked down on in cinema. Mm. And it does seem, though, that the films acknowledge these traits and acknowledge some reason for some of the downward looking and yet remain really sympathetic to their subjects. Ooh, you really are teeing us up for even more good conversation. Is it time? Uh, you know, it is time. I think it is time we got down to business. Yes, Okay, well, I mean, I didn't know if we were going to do that thing, but we certainly can. Um, we can begin with that, or we can begin with violence, or we can talk about, I don't know, indie movies? Uh, let's you, start what, with class. What's your pleasure? Let's no, start with class. Class, as we were talking about it just now. Yeah, and it's not just that everybody in this film is, like, working class or to poor. Uh, even, you know, Dwight's sister, who's, like, you know, a, a working mom, is, like hustling to maintain a lower middle class existence mm -hmm. she's got she's, a house she's got a, a regular babysitter mm -hmm. you know so things are going your child care stable her you know she's based on how she dresses the job seems probably pretty okay um you know the house is nice she's a cubicle grunt i would assume of yeah, some sort exactly. yeah but that's like the echelon that is like normie middle class existence is like the pinnacle of of class in this world. And do note it's regionally located in Pennsylvania. Yes, we so, are sort of... Which uh, is Appalachia also, but... Yeah, we're Virginia, Pennsylvania, Kentucky. We're sort of staying in that that triangle. Um, I always forget like how close to Appalachia, Pennsylvania is. Mm -hmm. Like You think of it as a northeast state, but it, it is you know more Rust Belty. Western obviously. PA is kind of hillbilly, though. Yeah. yeah. Sure, sure. It makes sense. Um, but anyway, I mean, Dwight especially you know is unhoused and then the um oh my god what is the name of the family that he's going after the clelands yeah clelands yeah um they're you know a bunch of people squeezed into one house it seems like doing some amount of subsistence hunting I mean, obviously, they just seem to like it, too, but... Yeah, they seem to have a property, like an ancestral, yeah. you know, grandpa's... Well, well we know that Papa Cleveland owned a business running limos. Yeah, and that's what they're they're doing right now, still. But I was more presuming that that was just... A front. One person's house. Interesting. I thought that a bunch because of Because they all came there to make there. sure he was home. Gotcha, gotcha. I could be wrong, though. I, I was, was reading it as... One person's house. Gotcha. I was, and that was, I was trying to figure out. I, I know the sister lives there. Obviously, she knows where that one gun is in the final showdown. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it's unclear. But th th at the very most, they are running a semi profitable limo business. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not really. They're not hurt. Rock stars, though. Which, yeah. again, seems to be some sort of front for other illicit gains. Potentially. You know, for them. I, it never is explicitly stated, but you feel like they're running drugs. Or, they're really ready to, like, kill Dwight go. over yeah. calling the cops. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's unclear if they own that club that Dwight mm. kills um, little... Uh, Earl. Earl. Little Junior. No, I don't think that's right. Carl? Uh can't remember Carl any Jr. of the Cleland's names. Nah, I don't either. Yeah. Um, Teddy gets run over. Yeah, that's Teddy. Wade. Wade. Oh, Wade. Wade. That's right. Wade's the first to go. Yeah. And I think it was Wade. Wade's Jim. the one that was in prison. Yeah, he's the one that did the bit. Yeah. And it was because the older brother had uh, too, many, too many strikes on his record. Yeah, and dad had cancer. Yeah. So anyway, that's, that's what's going down with the Cleland's, if you didn't know. Uh, but yeah, it is... You know, you're right that this is a world that is like looked down on by the studio system fairly often, you know, even in Deliverance, which is, you know, sort of I don't know, sympathetic to what is a form of I don't know if you would, if, you know, it's it's more a, a colonization than a gentrification, sort of the suburban sprawl of Atlanta taking out, you know, these these wooded areas and. 
Um, that that sort of being an issue in the 70s, being explored within Deliverance, is sympathetic to like wood folk at some level. But they're also scary and dangerous. Sure. And yeah. You know, even, even in a sympathetic portrayal, they are a, somebody you should be afraid of. Right. Because you they've been wronged. Um, but it's, yeah, I can't, I'm trying to think of other sort of explorations of of this and sort of mainstream studio American cinema of sort of like rural poor America, which does not fare favorably and tends not to. Yeah. in much, you know, depiction. And I, I I know in this film, it it is very interesting. Like, uh, I don't know where he's from actually. And I'm kind of trying to look it up right now. I thought it was Sonia. Yeah. Cause, uh, green room is Pacific Northwest set. This is East coast. He's an East coast guy. No, I'm, I mean, oh, uh, that's what oh, this is. He's uh, from yeah. Virginia, Virginia. OK, so this that makes sense that this is kind of where he's from, that the, this sort of the, the big Kickstarter movie. But is his sort Virginia of, is definitely not for lovers. No, no, no definitely not. It is. It's a different it's, it's a different the true side Virginia. of Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's like beach Virginia, right? Right. It's like, you know, the sort of gig economy of a beach town. It's, you know it's a life that is sustainable, right? Like mm-hmm. Dwight can break into people's vacation homes and take baths and, you know, hang out on the beach and live in the old family car. Winters and, are not very brutal. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's viable. It's, and that's, what's kind of interesting about Dwight and sort of his sister's relationship. We don't get much insight into it other than she perceives him as weak for this path that he's started down. And it's unclear if, you know, when she accuses him of being weak, it's unclear if she means you were weak and that's why you had to go kill Wade and bring the Cleland family's like ire upon us. Or if she means like you're weak and that's why you live outside of the margins of society. Yeah. You know, I, it's it's loaded when she says it. It is loaded, but I've always tended to read it towards the act of violence. Like you're better yeah. than this and yeah. you sort of gave in to your more baser impulses. Yeah. yeah. Seems to be. I think that that's probably more fair because she seems to have like sympathy for his situation because she's prepared to give him money even though he, that's not what he wants but sure. she seems ready to do that um God, I, I think she well she's she too is traumatized and so she understands the wrong yeah. response to the trauma Exa- yeah. yeah well yeah. and well, she's not, yeah wrong but you know the, raw raw response a maybe. raw response yeah. yeah well and she understands like she's so heartbroken by this knowledge that he like saw them on the boardwalk and like, didn't feel like he could approach them. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's, it's like it's such a quiet moment. I mean, it's honestly one of my favorite sections of the film is Dwight going to visit his sister. Yeah. The actress is so good Wade. too. That plays. Yeah. Sister I don't know her. her she's barely she's, in a scene there, but yeah. she's, she's so good. Killer in it. Yeah. yeah. Amy Hargreaves. Yeah. She's very, very good in the, in the two or three scenes that she has. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just class in this film is so interesting and it's, you know, it, it's probably a feature of it being, you know, an independent crowdsourced film that it's able to focus on sort of stories outside the margins of, mm-hmm. of what the studio system is interested in. Or when, when the studio system is interested in these, these types of stories, it is grimier. It is more yeah. exploitative. Yeah. Um, it is more, uh, devil's rejects. Yes. I'm sure. Is, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. And, and the Clelands don't ever come across as evil. You know, they're bad. Yeah. They're like dangerous. But they've also been wronged. Mm-hmm. So they're not like coming after Dwight for no reason. Right. You know, he has started this blood feud. Or at the very least, like, can escalate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was on pause because, you know, he does, he does go to prison. Yeah. You know, and so there is a sense in which there is a debt that's paid. Of course, does that satisfy, you know, the murder of your parents? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I certainly understand a, a person feeling like that would be mm-hmm. hollow justice. Yeah. In that kind of moment, especially if they got out, right? Which which leads to that sort of theme of redemptive violence. I think that's going on here in this film for sure, and gives us. I mean, a shortcut to that is just like the reveal that, like, no, actually, Wade didn't kill your parents. Like Papa Cleland, uh, senior, whatever his name is, senior did it, mm-hmm. but he had cancer, so nobody was going to watch him go to jail. So there, and he's died years prior to the events right. of the film. So there, there was never any. There was no vengeance to be satiated ever. Right. And I think the key moment of the impotence of revenge in the film is is peeing on Papa Cleland's grave. Mm, mm-hmm. I, I really feel like that's that mo that moment 
carries a lot more freight than maybe, I, and I didn't think about it the first time I watched the movie. It was the second or third watch where, where the whole movie is he's trying to enact this violence and, and, and so it's going back and forth and back and forth and nobody's ever satisfied. And it's sort of like that, you know, the cycle of revenge that, and, and you know, an eye for an eye leaves the world blind and, you know, all those other sort of Gandhi kind of quotes that we could talk about with revenge and uh, how it ends up hollow. But when he finally is able to confront as close as he can confront, because you can't confront the act. You cannot undo the act. You cannot in any way um, balance the equation. All he can do is this childish, silly, meaningless, utterly meaningless act of defiance. And it it seems to me that that's what Saulnier is, is, is suggesting the entire project is. It's just a kid you know, taking a leak on a guy's grave. Calvin on the back of a Chevy. Yeah, yeah. As do, does nothing. Yeah. Fitting for this setting. Totally. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Very NASCAR. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. I like that read. That's fine. Too, yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, he, you know, it's, it's so, it's so interesting. You know, Dwight gets there uh, to catch you up to speed if you didn't watch the movie with us. Uh, be. Dwight gets to pee on Papa Cleland's grave because he's at like the family home and nobody's there. And he's got like time to like set up an ambush and, you know, with his little four ten, throw away their guns and prepare himself. That's such a fun detail of the movie that like he's a terrible shot. So the only thing he can possibly use is like a low gauge shotgun (laughs) with buckshot. Yeah. Yeah. Just like so fun and not even like an effective like stopping power or like a, a bird gun like mm-hmm. a, varmint, yeah. a varmint shotgun yeah yes yeah, it's, it's, it's i mean i used a 410 a lot as a kid to hunt yeah. squirrels yeah. yeah yeah so funny anyway uh we'll get we'll get to gun nerd bullshit in a little bit maybe <laughs> um but yeah he just like he sets up this little ambush and then has to stew in it which is like such a cool sequence of him like the waiting game and him being you know, kind of clever in his way. You know, it's it's like the only time the movie positions him as like having a game plan at all. Yeah, it's the first time he's like, oh, I'll set up this jar of pennies as a, a you know a, a a sound alarm trap in the for in the middle of the night if I fall asleep. And so he's got he's kind of gaming it out, and he's finally like, all right, getting serious about I'm in a blood feud now. Mm-hmm. But it it is. Yeah, you don't you don't want to be good at this. I mean, it, it is part of what the movie suggests there yeah. as well. It's like he's sort of developing some if you skills. Get comfortable with it, it's 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 it's, it's even sadder, yeah. you know, yeah. that he's figuring stuff out. You know, that he had, develops some competence. And do they even have a line that address? I was trying to remember if his friend has no. His friend just says that he's killed a couple of people, but they don't allude to like that sort of it getting easier. You, you stuff. don't want to be good at this. Yeah, yeah. There's, it doesn't really like directly tip its hat to because yeah. his, his friend is very pragmatic about violence, mm-hmm. which I think is. Uh, you know, a feature of the character being a veteran, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, sort of... Now, I've been listening to the Ringers podcast, Do We Get to Win This Time, which is about, like, the Hollywood, you know, Hollywood-Vietnam War. And, That's cool. Yeah, it mm. has been really good. But it just makes me think... Of, I've been thinking about portrayals of veterans in the media because of that podcast. And it is sort of an interesting... Sympathetic, but a little... I don't know, a little taxi driver, but not all the way there. Sure. Like, it's like, yeah, this guy, like is also kind of positioned himself on the margins of society. He like works security at a metal club and lives in the woods and will give you a gun. No questions asked if you were his friend in high school. Sure. Um, but yeah, you know, interesting. I look, I don't know that the, you know, uh, airborne vet, that's a gun guy in my life who I was friends with in high school would do that for me. I could find out though. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Uh, If you want me to, we can do that, that research. Yeah. Yeah. We can do a case study on Jeremy Sonia's blue ruin. Like like, I, I need a firearm. I need a firearm right now. Yeah. I I think somebody, I think I, I, if I needed to, I could find a friend that would loan me a gun, but if they knew what mm. it was for, I don't think they would. Yeah. Like, that's the dividing line, yeah, like right? You, like, you have to come up with a story. It's like, like, are hey. you going hunting or you know, or are you entering into a blood feud? Yeah, well, yeah. Well, and that's what's so interesting about that character is he is a, he is willing to, like, go into it, no questions asked, but this is, like, so curious that he does follow him and keep he an eye on he, him. he says he almost called the cops, right, at one point. Yes, he says he yeah. thought about it. Yeah. Yeah, which is it's sort of interesting that he... Definitely torn. Yeah. But he's also smart. I mean, like you said, pragmatic because mm-hmm. it is a... 
I couldn't shoot until he aimed. Yeah, like right. He's, he knows the stuff. That, yeah. that, well, that's his that's his personal ethics. You know, yeah. it it really isn't. I mean, it wouldn't hold up in court at all. But the idea is like, you know, I I'm not going to shoot an unarmed man. I'm not yeah. going to shoot a man in the back. It's it's Western sort yeah. of, you know, um, uh, moral compass, but not the world's or not the government's moral compass. It's my own personal compass. I yeah. think that, and this is something I was thinking about earlier, uh, and, and you just mentioning it again, but. You know, we, we we're looking at this kind of in light of Cohen's, but there is something very Western about it. Yeah, I think as well as you know, you shot my paw. Now it's true grit. You know, it mm-hmm. is that mm-hmm. same sort of through. And and I think that's where we you know looking at these kind of groups on the both on the kind of margins of society, whether it's Dwight or whether it's the Clelands, right? It's you know very much carries a legacy of the Western frontier and the way in which justice, quote unquote, was handled and. and those stories well and in some ways we never grew out of it right as like a national ethos um and you could put that on our deeply flawed justice system you could put that on generational trauma you know on on the, the long lingering effects of widespread colonization like there's all sort of shit economic you could chalk- exploitation through the coal industry boom yeah. yeah there's so much stuff you could chalk it up to but at some level like we never matured enough as a nation to have a robust federal justice system. We have one in theory mm-hmm. and it has a whole lot of jurisdiction over a whole lot of people, but it's a, a lot of people are underserved by it and a lot of people are overserved mm-hmm. by it in some ways. So it's, it's interesting that the Cleland family and, and Dwight's family just see it as a non-issue. It's just such a non-entity in their lives. It's like, well, of course, like, of course we want to keep it in house. Like what good does keeping this, you know, as Teddy says, keeping it and keeping the problem in house, like mm-hmm. why would we want to go to them? Yeah. What good has that ever done for us? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there is a sense in which, you know, no, they, we, we have, it's, it's, it's a question of control almost. Right. Which is what, um, Dwight's reliance on justice has failed him to do. He's, he's allowed, the, the criminal justice system, and now after, you know, six, eight years, mm-hmm. I, I assume, it's less than a decade. I think it's longer than a... Uh, yeah, it's kind of vague on the timeline, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, because, hmm. I mean, usually secondary manslaughter, you get, like, 20 years and Oh, serve well, 10. no, there's... We haven't even talked about this, but Dwight's father, father to Cleland. Mm, yes. And that's part of... Which we don't know. You know, which we don't find out until, like, the very end of the movie. But that kid... Is probably 15, mm-hmm. maybe 17. That's true. Yeah. So, so that is our timeline. That's yeah. our timeline. That's yeah. what we're working with. It's been maybe decade and a half to ish. Mm-hmm. So I forgot about that character. Yeah. Yeah. That helps. But he is an important character. And I, you know, we should probably address him that like at the center of this movie, the lone survivor is the product of the two families that were in the blood feud mm-hmm. is Dwight, you know, the feuds kicked off because uh, Dwight's father yeah. slept with the Cleland's mother. Yes. Who I don't know if she gets a name. I can't remember if that character is ever. She's never on screen. And they're so. both and they're both killed, you know, yeah. in the revenge. Yeah, both both of Dwight's parents and Teddy cops to Dwight's mother being killed as sort of a Sorry about you know, that. Our bad. Yeah, <laughs> well, Mia, Mia culpa <laughs> on the, the, their their part. Wish we'd have kept that out, but you know. Yeah. Got to get away if we can get away. But it is I don't know that the thing that pushes Dwight over the line as he's like eavesdropping on the Clelands when they first get back home is the knowledge that they are going back to Pennsylvania, that they are mm-hmm. going to try to like find his sister and kill her. And he can't have that. No. Um, so after it's all said and done and all the Clelands are dead and Dwight is dying, it is the little Cleland boy, uh, his hat, Dwight's half brother mm-hmm. who's less standing. And it is sort of this, I don't know what it means, but it means something, you know? Well, I think the fact that he's family, right? There's yeah. the way in which we cannot play us and them with humans, that we are, you know, I, I, it's sort of, I mean, it's real hippy-dippy, but I, yeah. I, I think that's kind of where it's going, is that we're all part of one human family. And in, until we can recognize that, these sort of ways in which we demarcate these losses, because you would imagine that in the day-to-day goings-on of the Cleland family, there is great strife. All the time. They seem like there are people who scream and yell at each other, cross and double cross, and betray one another regularly. It seems like a less than supportive environment, probably. Yeah, you, yeah. you know, and, and but they but they're family mm-hmm. and we have to sort of, you know, we gotta let it go and we you know, sure you want to, but you're not going to, you know, seek the revenge that you would want because you recognize these people are a family. 
And uh, if he had known Dwight was family, if Dwight had known he was family, there would have been different choices made, is mm-hmm. the assumption. And it's, so I, it seems like the ethical commentary is simply, if we knew we were all family, we would act differently. Yeah. If, if we thought, you know, which, again, real... It's hippy-dippy and straightforward and easy, but maybe it is that simple. Yeah. I think I like that. Yeah, I think that's that's compelling. Um, redemptive violence gets us nowhere, as per usual. Yeah. Um, there's no good to be found there. Yeah. Um, and there's just I more mean, graves. And, and again, the, the Western, you know, sort of explores this a, a lot. You know, I think about um, Clint Eastwood and Unforgiven mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. So, and just one of those kind of things. And and that oh, that's a film that really does like to have its cake and eat it too. Yes, it does because he goes on. Yeah. Yeah. Should have armed himself. He's going to display my friend like that or whatever the line is. It's a pretty cool line. Yeah, it, is, it, is a, it is a good line. He's going to display my... Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I definitely a film that like is about Western myths and then kind of reinforces them a little bit. A little and bit. I, maybe that's the question we should ask. Do we, do we feel like Blue Ruin reinforces these ideas at all? I, I don't think it does. I find it to feel... It seems the movie thinks its violence is horrific and wants mm-hmm. us to think so, too. I think Green Room is the only one that's like, no, sometimes you have to do violence. Right. You have to defend yourself against evil forces sometimes. Yeah, because, I mean, if you don't shoot Patrick Stewart, you're going to die. Yeah, if you don't kill the Nazis back, you're toast. Yeah. Uh, whereas this is like, no, you've opted into a blood feud. Yeah. You've, you've, chosen, you've chosen malice. And you weren't even prepared for it. <laughs> you you, you right. were so overtaken by hatred that you didn't think about how incapable you are of committing violence. Which, because Dwight is like a scene is comes across as like a very soft and sensitive character. Yeah. Which brings us to the Cohen-esque-ness, you know, since this is a series of coincidences. The thing that's Cohen's about that it is it is funny. You're right. But it's it's not Cohen's funny. Because, well, I mean, there are bits in Cohen's that I guess are like this that are funny, but Cohen funny seems to be a little more silly, overwhelmingly. I think it depends on the movie. Sure. Mm -hmm. For that. Yeah. I mean, mean, they do have that kind of ironic black humor, and then they just have their straight-up absurdist stuff like uh, Burn After Reading. Mm -hmm. But I think there's some funny bits in Blood Simple or even inside Lou and Davis that are not... No country, Goofy. yeah. Serious man, all of those Some very have, dry yeah. bits. That I mean, I think the thing about Blue Ruin is, you know, it is that very dry. If you're not paying attention, you know, it, it's the it's the delivery of, well, I could have got you a gun from the his, <laughs> yeah, yeah. His hostage in the trunk. You <laughs> yeah, know, I mean, yeah. it's, it's stuff that if you're not thinking about it, right. Or the guy interrupting for the ketchup on, That's in the so restaurant, funny, oh my dude. Gosh, that bit is hilarious. I was thinking about like him knocking over the pitchfork while he's like yeah. sneaking around the house. Like, yeah. yeah, that whole sequence in the house is like a comedy of errors, almost. right? Well, and it's incompetence that is yeah. the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the general drift of Cohen esque, you yeah. know, sort of humor. There's a level of just numb scullery to with, Dwight with, with you know, crime kind of stuff, a man out of his depth or woman, a person, a yeah. human, out of their depth, and their, yeah, numbskullery, I think that is the yeah. word. I kept thinking a lot earlier, as we were talking, of uh, there's something very simple plan about this, right? There's mm. something of, you know, he, he breaks into a car to get a gun, and the gun's got a lock in it. And he can't get, you know, like, there's this <laughs> and, level and, of... And he breaks the gun by trying to break the lock Anything that can go wrong through his intentionality is going to go wrong. I mean, there's yeah. that Murphy's law thing at work. And tries so, to puncture the tire, slices his hand oh, open. Gosh, oh, that, man, that is awful. Then has to drive Take the limo. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because he's lost the key to his car. Oh my God. Yeah. It's that, that whole sequence is so stressful. Mm-hmm. Just like from the moment he pulls up to that bar to kill Wade, you're just like, Whoa God. And when he kills Wade, if especially it was fun to watch with Alex since he's never seen the movie before. He's like, what? Exactly. That's the movie. That's, <laughs> Holy we're, shit. We're done. But we're not. That man, the guy playing Wade too has one job and he kills it, literally. Mm-hmm. And he <laughs> dies on screen with the best of them. Yeah. Like it's it is some pro shit. Yeah, it's it, it's up there the my one two favorite scenes of deaths are this and then Denis Levant when he kills himself, his double in Holy Motors. Mm, okay. And and th- this is on a level with that. It's just incredible. Yeah, Wade's sort of like eye flutter as he like his soul leaves his body. Holy shit. <laughs> Haunting. Haunting terrible stuff. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> this is I don't know. I don't know why why my brain is so cooked like this that I that this a movie like this is in my wheelhouse, but I just and, and it's the it's the bleak humor you've talked mm-hmm. about, Arthur. It's the repugnant violence that you've talked about, Dustin. It's it's all it's the class stuff that I you know want to talk about with with Dwight. Like there's just just a sad world that mm-hmm. it exists in, and I it scratches an itch for me, uh, unlike 
you know, many films can do. I mean, I, you know, I like, I saw Dazed and Confused this weekend and I came out of that being like, oh, wow, that's a five-star movie that I didn't even realize was, you know, a quiet masterpiece. Well, I don't but, know that Dazed and Confused falls into this same reason for why it cooks, because I think for me, the reason why is I do feel like it's a movie that can move society's needle. Interesting. To me, if you know, cinema that can actually do something that if you watch this and you thought about it, you might you, we might rethink the way we think about violence, the way we might rethink the way we think about Appalachia. All right. Well, here we go. Crazy connection. But O'Banion, the Ben Affleck character in Days and Confused, who's running around wanting to paddle the shit out of everybody. Yeah. Uh-huh. is like a super senior and is proud to be a second year a twice over a senior because he gets to torment freshmen again. OK. You know, he gets paint dumped on him, and that is, like, the extent of his comeuppance. And, right, like, so much of the, like, hazing rituals and Dazed and Confused are, like, framed in a very negative light. Like, the the camera is very sort of hands-off, which I'd forgotten about. Like, it is very just sort of observant of teen behavior. But it is sort of a, a movie entirely about, like, look at all the good stuff about teen behavior. Look at all of these people taking care of each other. Why can't we do more of that and mm. less of the, like messing with each other yeah and so i don't know maybe maybe, that is, maybe. maybe that's what it is maybe it is about it's films it's been like, too long since i've seen days and confused but now that you mentioned so that, worth a rewatch yeah, man yeah. 30th anniversary screening at the the museum this weekend it'd, it'd be cooler if time. i saw it it would be a lot cooler if you did see it um yeah i think that's that's it it's we we, we are hungry for films that like have something to say and, and want to try to move things forward. Absolutely, absolutely. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts. Let's render a verdict now on Blue Ruin. What do you say, Arthur? Shelf or trash? Um, I do think I would put it on the shelf. Uh, I, I think there is this way in which it kind of alluded to it. It seems to be moving in a direction. I, I think to your point about the conversation, it can start uh, away from, you know, it's only a few years after Taken mm-hmm. that this comes out and we've kind of already gotten this subgenre revival uh, through Liam Neeson and five years later, six years later, we can start really reckoning with what that means, uh-huh. you know, in the wake of a, of a, a taken or a book of Eli. Now we can actually look at what some of these things really mean. Mm-hmm. And I think this kind of kickstarts a trend that a few other filmmakers are going to also look at this genre at, with a similar eye. And so I think for that, it, it, and then just Sonia's voice as well as a filmmaker. So I, I think it's worth shelving. Absolutely. What do you say, Dalton? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm also going to say shelf and buy pig when you do it. Um, yeah. And then make a double bill. Yeah, man. Pushing us towards a national cinema that glorifies violence less. Yes. I'm coast all, to coast. I'm all for it. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts on all of that. If you want to tell us why we're wrong, and we definitely are, um, Dalton's going to tell you how. That's right. You can send us your long-form emails about how actually blood feuds are cool and good, <laughs> and you should do them. If you want to let us know about that, you can send your email to goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. It's the name of the show you're listening to. Good trash genrecast at gmail.com can't wait for the uh, Romeo and Juliet follow up to this where uh, William and Sam fall in love God, if only. oh my goodness wow wild um, if you want to follow us online uh, good luck we don't really post anymore because it's social media is sort of blowing up over the last year or so it utterly uh, imploded but we're at good trash media on the stuff if you want to find us it's more useful to rate review and subscribe to us where you you know do podcatchers and things like that that's sort of more valuable uh, and that's a better way to keep your eyes on like what we're putting out uh but you know we're all on the internet we're all on letterboxd um if you want to find us um i'm dollywood square is pretty much all over the place arthur is K King Arthur in, in some cryptic way. The Arthur Gordon or K Excalibur. Or yeah. yeah, I'm almost always a Dustin underscore cells or an Orson cells. Yeah, you'll find us. Um, last but certainly not least, if you want to keep the lights on, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM. Find out what's in it for you. We've got a couple of new patrons lately. Thanks, folks. Really just just nice. Just nice to have a few new supporters on the on the board. And uh, definitely nice since we recently invested in a whole bunch of new gear. Good to have movie money for buying movies occasionally. Because mm-hmm. you know, sometimes we want to talk about something that's not streaming. Uh, and we we gotta make that happen occasionally. So anyway, patreon.com forward slash GTM if you wanna find out how to help us. Now, we'll be closing out a series of coincidences with a host pick. That's right. It's time again. Dustin, it's your turn. Not mine. I picked Mrs. Doubtfire last month. That's right. Um, so what I thought about doing, I at one point thought about doing the one of some of the Ur texts for 
the Cohen-esque and thinking a lot about Strangers on a Train. Proto-Cohens. Yeah, Proto-Cohens. But I thought, what about another contemporary of the Cohens that sort of goes in another direction, but also really, you know, sort of plays in the, in, in the same way that a simple plan does, and but really going hard at comedy. And so I remember 1987. I remember it like it was yesterday. And Billy Crystal, Danny DeVito, and Throw Mama from the Train seems like the only place we could go from this point forward. And so that's what's next, um, a, a much maligned movie. A much needed pivot from Blue Ruin, probably. Yes, uh, the palate cleanser, if you will. So um, you keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid.